Uh, Halloween was a couple of weeks ago. It's kind of uh, actually three weeks ago, I, I think. And some of you may still be eating your Halloween candy, which means you do it in moderation, which I'm impressed with. But um, that is the first time in about 18 years that Kara and I didn't have to take a kid trick-or-treating. And so we kind of went the old school way. We grabbed a couple of chairs. We grabbed our big old bucket of, of candy, and we set out on our driveway as everybody would come from the neighborhood and come up and, and do their trick-or-treating. Well, as the kids were coming up and doing their trick-or-treating, you know, you kind of pay attention to the costumes that, that you see. So there are all kinds of different costumes, and if you were serving kids or, or you were out walking around with your kids, you probably saw a lot of dinosaurs. Seemed to be quite a few dinosaurs out there. Uh, quite a few ninjas walking around your neighborhood protecting everybody, which was great. Uh, some beautiful princesses were, were there, which were just incredible. Lots of zombies this year. And, uh, and superheroes, but mostly the superheroes were uh, Marvel comics, not DC comics. Things have kind of switched over the years. Yep, exactly. And um, maybe my favorite was the inflatable chicken. This one young lady was an inflatable chicken, and she was hilarious to watch walk around. She was great, so we gave her a little extra candy. But there's one thing I noticed this year, because I was kind of thinking back to, to, to my trick-or-treating days, and, and as I was thinking back to that, I was like, where are the vampires? right? Some of you remember back in the day, like every third kid was a vampire because you were one of those kids. You, you had on your black pants, your white shirt, your black cape. You had the vampire fangs in your mouth that, you know, you couldn't actually talk with and didn't really fit, but you put them in anyway. And if you were rich, you actually had fake blood that was on your chin there. But, but some of you remember those days, right? There were vampires. There are no vampires anymore when it comes to Halloween. I am here to tell you this morning that vampires still exist and they are still real. I'll get to that in just a second, because today we do continue this series called Difficult People, where we've been looking at these people in our lives. They're just, man, they're just difficult sometimes to be around. Uh, we, we talked the first week that some of us who are followers of Christ, we're Christians. Hey, we're some of the worst difficult people that are out there and how we can kind of change our ways and not be in those difficult people. Last week, Daniel talked about downers and if we're the downer or we're around these downers, how we work with them and deal with them. But this week, we're going to talk again about these vampires in our lives. Now, here's the deal. These vampires do not suck the blood out of us, okay? These vampires are relational vampires, and they suck the life out of us. And so we're going to talk about these relational vampires today, or another term that we use in the church world is EGRs. Uh, these are the extra grace required people in our life. Yes, they exist too. Well, let me start by kind of defining the characteristics of these EGRs, okay, of these relational vampires. You may know these people. They dominate your time. Uh, the conversations that they have with you are just way too long. Uh, they're negative about life. Everything that happens in their life is not their fault at all. They're insecure. This is the group where they text you, and then two minutes later, you haven't texted them back. And they text you back, and like, hey, I saw you read the text message. Right? I, why haven't you responded? Like, do you hate me now? Is our relationship over? What's going on with, with this connection that we have? I mean, these people are very insecure. Um, they, they blow small things into to big deals. So they blow things out of proportion. Now, th this list could go on and on. And maybe some of these characteristics are what you see and people that you, you know. But what we know is this group of people, they're always in need. They're always looking for help. They're always hurting. They always are looking for more love. They're looking for more attention. 
They're looking for more money. And here's what you know. Over time, they drain you. They deplete you. They make you weary. They make you tired. They make you poorer. And no matter what you do, this group of people is always in need. Now, the crazy thing is that some of these live in our home. Uh, some of them are coming for Thanksgiving dinner this week. Uh, maybe they work in the cubicle beside you. They could be in your life group. Maybe it's a friend of yours. Or they might be sitting beside you right now at this moment. Okay, don't turn and look at them. <laughs> but here's the issue. <clears throat> As a follower of Jesus, there's this incredible tension that we sort of live in with this group of people. Because we're called to be compassionate. We're called to love people unconditionally. And inside, we have this desire to help those that are in need. But at the same time, we're like, I, I don't want to train this individual to, to be dependent on me. And so how do we deal with this, this tension that we find? Well, there's a great starting point, and we actually can look at a part of Jesus' life, an event that takes place in his life to kind of help us to begin to think through this. It comes out of John chapter 5. John chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the Sheep Gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem. There's this, it says Pool of Bethesda. Actually, two pools that are there. One's about 315 feet long by about 200 feet wide, 250 feet wide. The other one's 200 feet long by 250 feet wide. So it's, it's big. Now, now, parents, this isn't your neighborhood pool, Okay. So uh, this isn't a place you go drop off your kids, there's lifeguards, and you sit on the, the side drinking Mai Tais. This isn't this kind of thing, okay? It's actually a rainwater reservoir. And, and not only that, but it was used in the ceremonial cleansings, the ritual cleansings that the Jewish people um, believed in and the traditions and customs that they had. So it was pretty important to the Jewish way of, of life. But as you, you see here, we also find that here at this pool, there are blind people, lame people, paralyzed, the sick. Now, why are they all here? It was thought that this angel of God would show up, this water would begin to stir, and the first one that could get into that water would be healed. Now, the water would stir, but they think it was because of some subterranean pressure, water pressure that would kind of hit and make the water stir. And maybe at some point, someone had been healed or stories of people being healed had happened. And so this group of people would show up there and wait for this water to stir so they could get in and hopefully be healed. Look at verse 5 says, one of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? He says, I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. So Jesus goes there, he meets this lame man at the pool, and he, <laughs> he asks a really strange question. He says, do you want to get well? Here's a guy who's been lame for 38 years. Maybe he's been at this pool for almost all those 38 years. I'm thinking, he's like, yeah, I, I want to get well. But it's almost like he makes an excuse, too. I want to, but no one's helping me get into the water, and so no, I I'm never going to be able to get well. Well, look at what Jesus says to him in verse 8. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping bag and began walking. So Jesus tells him, he's like, hey, get up, grab your mat and walk. And so this amazing miracle takes place there at these pools. 
But I, I want to do something. I actually want to go back to verse 3 because I think there's some important information we, <clears throat> we missed there. It says, crowds of sick people lay on the porches. So Jesus shows up at this pool, or these pools. There's lots of sick people there. And everyone that's there, they're there for one reason. They're looking to be healed. Now, I'm guessing as Jesus walks in there, people know who he is, and they probably start calling out his name, like, hey, Jesus, over here, can you help me? Can you heal me? But if, if you notice the story, Jesus doesn't heal everyone who's there. And if you even look deeper, he doesn't even heal five people that are there. He goes to this one particular guy, and he heals him. I think some of us feel that when people are needy, and always asking for something from us, that our job is to help every single one, every single time. And, and yet we, we look at a story like this with, with Jesus, and Jesus isn't doing that. And yet for us, we're like, man, I'm going to give up all my time. I'm going to give up all my resources. I'm going to help every single one. I'm going to give them my money. I'm going to invest my emotions in them. And Jesus is like, you know what? I'm going to help this one guy. I think when we begin to look at the life of Jesus, we see that he didn't help everyone who asked for help. And so what would this look like for us to live this kind of life where we're helping these individuals who are those relational vampires who are sucking the life out of us, these extra grace required people, but doing it in a way that's healthy for us and also healthy for them. And so I want to share with you this morning these three ideas that I think can get us to that place. Now, the first one I would share with you is that we need to learn to give resources strategically. Give our resources strategically. This is the time of year everyone's asking for your money, right? Uh, Salvation Army's asking for your money. Your local fire station's asking for your money. Nonprofits are asking for your money. Churches are asking for your money. <laughs> and if you think about it, you know, everybody's asking for your money. And, and most of us are like, yeah, I, I, I'll give you something because it's the holiday season. Now, I think the number one reason we like to give this time of year is we're thinking about taxes, right? We're like, I need a bigger tax break for this year. And so probably a lot of people give for that reason. But another reason, a really good reason, is some of us actually like people. But we, we care for people. We want to help specific organizations. And, and so we give because we, we have this heart to give. Here's my question. How strategic are we when it comes to something like giving, we'll say, money away? And how much of our giving is only emotional? I want to look at something that happens with Peter and John. In Acts chapter 3, it says, Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon and take part in the 3 o'clock prayer service. As they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money crazy part is we're 2,000 years later and we still see this every day where we live, right? We see these individuals on, on street corners. We see them in shopping centers. People are still there just asking for help and, and specifically asking for money. Well, Peter and John, they encounter this guy and, and he wants help. He, he wants money. Now, let me just say that in that time period, this gentleman did not have something like the ADA who could make sure that there were fair working conditions for him. He, he's not going to be able to get a job down at the local subway shop. He's not going to be able to do that. And so the way that you would help support yourself and also help support your, your, your family is that you would do what he's doing. You would ask for money. You would beg for money. 
But a big part of this was playing on the emotions of people as they were walking in and out of the city. As we kind of look at this here, and we think about these extra grace required people in our lives who are always asking for something from us, do we give to them out of emotions? Because I think so often we do, right? We, we hear there's a need, we, we see there's a need, we know there, this person is, and these emotions kick in. And our instinct is to react. Our instinct is, is to move and, and to help and to support and to care for them. But what if we begin to think not emotionally about how we gave to those who are asking for help, but we, we learn to give strategically? Go back to our story. Look at verse 4. It says, Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, look at us. The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you. Now, imagine you're this guy. You're there. You're trying to raise money for yourself, support you, support your family. And this guy, Peter's there, and you're like, hey, can you help me out? And Peter's like, I can't help you out. I don't have any silver, don't have any gold, don't have any drachmas, don't have any quarters. I can't, I can't help you out. And this guy's probably like, can you move? Right? You're blocking the way. More people are coming through here. You're wasting my time. But Peter doesn't stop there, does he? Peter continues with this man. Here's what he says. He says this. He says, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazarene, get up and walk. Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up, stood on his feet, and began to walk. Then walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple with them. And some of you right now, you're singing that, so, that Sunday school, school song in your head. The ones that are laughing know what I'm talking about. Everybody else does no clue, so don't worry about it. Anyway, we're not going to sing that this morning. Here's the point here. When we give strategically... We're not focusing on what somebody wants or what someone's asking for. We're actually focused on what this individual needs. And so we begin to ask ourselves some questions. What can I give that genuinely helps this person? What, what can I give that, that helps them, not, not just for this moment, but, but for the future? What, what helps them in the long term? Sometimes we don't think about that. We're just like, I'm just going to help in this moment and keep doing that. No, what helps for the long term for them? Because if you look at Peter and John here, this is what they do. They give to this guy strategically. They're not giving to him emotionally. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, well, but I can't heal anybody. I mean, I, I can't heal like Peter and John or, or like Jesus did. But I do believe we can be more strategic in how we give. Now, hear me out. I'm not just talking about money here, okay? I'm talking about our time. I'm talking about our emotions. I'm talking about our ability to, to sit and, and to listen to what someone needs to, to kind of get off their chest. And I'm talking about other resources that we have. We're not just thinking about this money thing, but when we're talking about giving strategically, we're talking about giving all of, of who we are. But to do that, I really believe it begins by taking time to pray and saying, hey, God, <laughs> I've got this relational vampire in my life, and they are sucking the life out of me. <laughs> Can you help me out? Can you give, give me the patience I, I need? Can you give me the, the wisdom I need? And, and through those prayers, you're thinking about and, and planning accordingly. And when I'm talking about planning accordingly, I, I'm talking about you're planning with your soul and your mind, your calendar, your, your checkbook, whatever else it, it may be. Because I'm going to give you what you need and not what you want. 
And so we have to begin to learn to give strategically. But then this leads us into the next thing. I believe we have to learn to serve wisely. When you're dealing with people that are overly needy in your life, um, so often we do give emotionally and not strategically, but we also don't serve them wisely. And I've already been saying this. We give all that we have all of the time. I love what happens in Jesus' life in Mark 1. Starting with verse 32, it says, That evening after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. So Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. Here's Jesus. It is actually after sunset. Um, he's there in this location, and everybody is coming to him and asking for help. Right? And, and they're coming from every angle you can think of. We look here, there's sick people, there's demon-possessed people, there's diseased people. And so this is well into the evening and to the night, and all these people are saying, Jesus, can you help me? Look at verse 36. It says, later Simon, Simon's name is changed to Peter a little bit later on, <clears throat> and the others went out to find him. This is the disciples went out to find Jesus. When they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. But Jesus replied, we must go on to other towns as well, and, and I will preach to them too. That is why I came. So he traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. Now this is actually the next morning before sunrise. Peter, the other disciples, they're looking for Jesus, and they find him. And they don't say, good morning, Jesus, how are you doing? Would you like some breakfast? You want to talk a little bit? You want to go for a walk? It's like, no, everyone's looking for you, Jesus. Where are you? Everyone needs your help. Where have you been? We haven't been able to find you. We don't know what's going on. They need you to talk to them and teach them. They need you to heal them. Everyone is looking for you, Jesus. Now, if you noticed, I actually left out a verse here. It's Mark 1.35. If you've been in our neighborhood groups, you know, probably about three weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, we read this passage and we talked about it within our groups here. But here's what it says. It says, Before daybreak the next morning... Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. <clears throat> All the parents out there, or if you've been a parent, where's the one room in your home that you can go and hide from your kids when you need a break? You already got it in your mind, right? And most of the time, it's the bathroom. Can we just be honest? Dudes especially, this is our favorite place to go hide, but... You go to the bathroom, you shut the door, you lock the door because you're like, I just need a break from these kids. What happens next? Mom, Dad, are you in there? What do we do, parents? We go dark, right? <laughs> we don't move a muscle. We stop breathing. Try to slow our heartbeat because like kids have this sixth sense. They just feel our presence somewhere. And we don't answer, We're like, maybe I'm okay. But then like a horror film, you see these little fingers coming underneath the doors. <laughs> you know it's true, they're reaching for you. They just want a piece of you, and you, you can't get away from these kids no matter what you do, right? Because kids are always looking for mom and always looking for dad. There's nowhere to go to hide. We go back to what we're reading here, and Jesus has been really busy. He's been helping all these different people. He's been serving them and yet people are still looking for him even when he's trying to take a break but, but i want you to notice what, what jesus does here he rests right he, he finds 
these moments to take a break and to rest. He finds time for himself. But if you look there, he's also finding time with God. But think about this. Why is he doing this? Well, because he understands he has more work to do. He he understands that he's not done. He understands these people are going to keep coming at him and coming at him like, Jesus, teach us. Jesus, be around us. Jesus, feed us. Jesus, do these miracles. Jesus, heal us. I mean, he knows that's coming. And so Jesus is strategic, but he also understands to serve these individuals wisely, he's got to find a time to rest, to rest for himself and to rest with God. You know what? If you and I, if we want to serve these relational vampires these egrs wisely in our lives with compassion with love with with kindness we've got to find time to rest for ourselves because you know what you can't give and 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 then not wear you down you can't give and give and give and give and not be be worn out because if you never rest when it comes to to helping these individuals in your life, you'll become angry, you become bitter, you become mean, you become hateful to these people that we are called to love. And so like Jesus, we have to find these moments where we can rest for ourselves and rest with God. Listen to this. I think this might be one of the most important things we're going to talk about today. We can't say yes often if we don't say no occasionally. We can't say yes often if we don't say no occasionally. If you look at at Jesus, Jesus didn't give and give and give every waking moment of his life. He found time to stop and to rest, to say no, to be with God. But if your cup is empty, guess what? You've got nothing left to pour out into the lives of others. If your cup is, is full, then you have a part of you that you can pour into someone else's life and and to help them in those difficult times. And so when I'm talking about the serving wisely, someone who may be these relational vampires in our life, it really means taking some time to regroup, to recharge, to rest, to spend time with God. Because only then can we truly serve them with everything that we have. And so not only do we need to give strategically, we have to serve wisely. And then the third thing I would say is we've got to trust God completely. Sometimes we think we're the answer, the only answer to someone's problems and their situation in, in life. We think if I jump in, then I can help them, I can save them. And we, we call this a Messiah complex, right? We think we're that person's savior, that we're the only one can save them from themselves, and again, we're the only one can save them from the situation that they, they find themselves in. But if you and I keep jumping into their lives to save them every single time, we're not helping them. In fact, what we're saying is, I trust in me, and I don't fully trust in, in God. And we've got to get to this place where we trust God completely. And I believe when we begin to do that, and know God can do crazy, amazing things in their lives, and we don't see ourselves as their Messiah, their Savior, God can begin to work in their lives too. But I think part of this is understanding that deep down there's a spiritual struggle, a spiritual issue inside of these individuals that we're trying to help. I love how Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 6, starting with verse 7. He says, Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. 
you will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. Uh, these extra grace required individuals are always looking to take from others. Again, time, resources, money, emotions, whatever they can. And yet they don't necessarily realize there's consequences to this behavior. And the more that we jump in and we continue to try to rescue them and save them, we're not allowing these consequences to play out. Now, what are those consequences? It could be their reputation, right? You may know these individuals, and you already may know they have this reputation for this. Their reputation may end up being tarnished, which leads to broken relationships and, and oftentimes leads to them living this life of, of loneliness. But here's the deal. They're, they're paying the price for their actions, for their words, for their decisions that, that they've made. And here is Paul right here, and he says, look, here's how this works. What you plant, that's what you're going to harvest. Whatever seeds you plant, that's what you're going to harvest in your life. And so if you're an extra grace required person, you're planting these seeds. You know what that harvest is going to bring? When you're planting these seeds, here's the consequences. You're going to have financial difficulties. You're going to never be able to keep a job. Those relationships that are important to you, you're going to struggle in them. You're going to find that you're less connected with people around you. And the reason is you're harvesting what you have sown and planted already. And yet we'll jump in thinking, I'm going to help this person out. I'm going to rescue them as best as I can. And yet our rescuing in the end could end up being doing more harm than good for these people that we love and we care for. I know their parents listening siblings friends grandparents you think your rescuing is helping but honestly it could really be hurting them because there's never any consequences for them and maybe it's time you let go and you let them hit rock bottom and it's not because you don't care and it's not because you don't want to help them and it's not because you don't want to be there for them but it might be that what needs to happen is you allow them to hit rock bottom so maybe in their life they can finally trust God completely too. The only way you're going to get there, though, is that if you and I begin by trusting God completely ourselves and understand that we cannot rescue them, that only God can do that. God's the power source, but we're the conduit for what God has in store for them. We're there, we're ready but we trust God completely in our lives. And so maybe they can get to this place of trusting God completely in their life too. Which again may mean letting them hit rock bottom in their life and getting out of God's way and let God be the Savior. Let God be the Redeemer. Let God be the Messiah and the Rescuer for them. Trust God completely. I know you may hear these words this morning. You may be thinking to yourself, well, <laughs> that doesn't sound very nice, Chad. Um, shouldn't we help these individuals? As a Christian, aren't we called to serve and care and love for it, be compassionate and kind to, to people like this? And you know what? You are exactly right. In fact, Paul talks about that, Galatians 6, verse 9 and 10. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. 
Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. Here's Paul, and he says, we're called to not grow tired of doing what is good, which means we continue to, continue to, to love these individuals unconditionally, that, that, that we still are, are kind and loving and compassionate. Because, oh, by the way, there's not only a harvest for them for what they plant, there's a harvest for us too and what we plant. Now, here's the deal. <laughs> Relational vampires are not going anywhere, okay? They're, they're not just going to disappear in our lives. They're always going to be there. There are going to be these people in our life that, that this extra grace is always going to be required of us towards them. But I do believe if we start taking steps like we've talked about today, that we're giving to them strategically, that, that we're being wise in how we serve by really just taking time for ourselves to rest, by ourselves to rest in God and then at the end we can fully trust who God is and let God work in their lives and and let us be the conduit for that in the end we can do good that will help them get to a place where God is trusted completely in their lives too and where God can use them in incredible ways but it really begins with us loving them unconditionally and putting these things into practice in our own life because we're all on this journey together there's no better way to do that than to do it as this team. I know that tension is there, and yet we're called to love in these ways. My prayer is as we continue on, as we think about the future, as we think about these relationships that we have, as we think about these people we're going to come into contact with this week over Thanksgiving, that maybe we can start to put some of these boundaries in place and that God will do incredible things in that and through that.